Support for this episode comes from Lexus. What emotion fits in the palm of your hand? Can you wield the power of gravity? What does exhilaration sound like? Only Lexus asks questions like these because they believe the most amazing machines aren't inspired by machines. They're inspired by you. Not only has Lexus asked these questions, they've answered them. Discover the answers at Lexus.com curiosity. Lexus. Experience amazing. I was emailed some basic details about the couple. I, I found out where they met, what kind of things they liked to do together, how long they'd been together. And then I had to turn around a quick Valentine's Day poem for the husband to give to his wife. And the husband giving the poem to his wife told his wife he had written it? I think so. I didn't find out how it went, and I still wonder. I mean, I hope they're still together. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny because when I was writing it, I couldn't help but get really emotionally invested in this couple who, you know, I have no relationship to and I will never meet in person. But from these few details, I was kind of intuiting the relationship. And it was it was an odd exercise. It also, I feel like, let me, let me write something I would never write myself because I think I would be way too embarrassed to write a love poem. But when writing it for somebody else in somebody else's guise, suddenly my inner love poet, my inner Naruto was unleashed. This man agreed to speak with me on the condition we keep his name private. His job requires anonymity. For the past decade, I have worked as a small town ghostwriter. So that means that instead of ghostwriting political memoirs or pop star Instagram feeds, I am helping people to write the kinds of things that come at us in daily life. Best man speeches and maid of honor speeches, applications for jobs, resumes, emails people need help with, awkward emails. I've written a love poem and I've written um, a small number of eulogies, but they've been memorable experiences. He works under the radar, and there are several reasons why it's important for him to stay anonymous. First, I don't want anybody who I have worked with to be exposed that they worked with somebody or that they worked with me. I don't want it to come back on them. I've always helped people express themselves And so it doesn't feel like I've done anything ethically wrong, but I suspect there's a taboo around uh, getting help with one's writing. And I certainly don't want anyone that I've worked with to be negatively impacted. And also, I'd like to keep doing this. And I have a sense that if I was out crowing about it, the phone would stop ringing. My name is Sarah Kay. And this is Sincerely X from TED. Before we dig into this episode, I want to admit up front that I came to this conversation with a lot of personal bias. As a writer and a poet, 
I think claiming authorship of something you didn't write without citation is generally unacceptable. But a lot of politicians have speechwriters, and some celebrity biographies are ghostwritten. When I think of a ghostwriter, those are the two places where I can imagine someone doing that kind of work with considerably less queasiness. I've even come to expect it in those cases. I take it for granted that sermons, wedding vows, best man speeches, or eulogies were written by the person delivering them. Why do I demand, desire, cling to authenticity in some spaces, but not in others? Is hiring a ghostwriter for these intimate writing assignments ethical? Can a ghostwriter write something for you that is still authentically you? Our guest believes yes. I always feel like everybody has a wealth of ideas and experience and emotions. And if they don't have an easy facility with words or just the confidence to put those into words themselves and they hire somebody who can help midwife them into a speech or an essay or a job application, it just feels not unethical, it just feels natural. It feels normal that you would ask for help and that someone who, for whom that's not an issue would provide it. Today we'll explore that idea and my conflicting feelings about it. It started really organically. I was just sort of helping family, then friends of family, and then friends of friends. And now my name just seems to be out there. And I get calls from people asking me to help them write all kinds of things. And I don't know how they got my name. I don't ask. They're strangers to me, but I work with them. It's always brief and professional. And then maybe a year later, I'll get a call from someone that they've given my name to, and it's just sort of spread. It's a kind of strange, organic job that's cropped up, and I don't know anybody else who does it. You don't have like an enigmatic business card that says <laughs> ghostwriter in a very translucent font. That's what I'm imagining. No, I have a feeling, my sense is that my name and number are kind of written down on napkins at barbecues and slid across tables to people saying, oh, you've got to write here, call this guy, he'll help. That's sort of my sense. So no, there's no business card and there's no convention. <laughs> you said that you help people with their writing. What is the difference between helping someone with their writing and ghostwriting? I guess for me, it's a very delicate process. When I work with somebody, I talk to them first just conversationally, and I try to get a sense of who they are and what they want to say and really what their essence is because I want whatever end product we come up with together to be infused with their unique personality and spirit. And so even if I'm providing in the end a lot of the words that end up on the page, there's a way that I work so that everything is really coming from them. 
And when I say everything, I mean both the character and the spirit of the piece, the content and the intention. I sleep well at night because I know that in helping people, what, I'm, what I feel like what I'm doing is equivalent to dressing someone well and appropriately for an occasion. So when you're working with a new client, you said you it's a very intimate process. You want to know them. You want to know their, their essence, and that goes into the work. So how often do you meet with someone? Well, sometimes I meet with somebody once. Sometimes I meet with them twice. Usually if I'm meeting with them for more time than that, it's for multiple different projects. And so that requires more meetings. But I would say that most commonly I'm meeting with people um, once or twice. So it's very brief. I think I'm naturally a sort of porous person. Uh, I'm a pretty sensitive person. And that's what makes me good at this job. You know, the job a lot of times is to try to make what is inside a person's body and coming out through nonverbal cues to get that onto the page. Um, I, can, I can tell by the way they're sitting where their passion is, where their excitement is, um, and where we should go. It's like using a dowsing rod and you're kind of looking for where the, where the water is. Can you tell me a little bit about what goes into writing a eulogy? Sure. Um, I have a lot of empathy for somebody who needs to write a eulogy and faces that very pressurized and emotionally draining challenge. You know, we used to have very specific, clear, culturally prescribed mourning rituals down to what color you would wear in the year after uh, a loss. But in our contemporary secular society, not everybody knows what to say and how to act in these situations. And I would also say that um, a difficulty that maybe you wouldn't automatically think of, we imagine people who have to write eulogies, the challenge automatically being how am I going to keep from crying while I'm trying to say these words um, up there? There's an even greater challenge, I think, in some ways, which is what if I go up there and talk and I don't cry? What if I don't find the words to evoke the emotion that the situation calls for? And so in those cases, the trick I've found is to put the eulogist in touch with maybe some feelings that they didn't necessarily have for the deceased if, there, if there's a kind of lack of emotion there um, and that's the problem. Try to put them in tune with that. And sometimes that's what it takes to release the emotion or release the words. So is a eulogy a situation where they're writing a draft and you're helping them edit it or is it like this is this person's name this is my relationship to them. Please write this for me. Yeah, it's more my words in the end, but still their ideas and feelings and experience. Um, so it would come out of a conversation, but I would be typing. It's being filtered through my words. They're just 
rooting around and bringing to the surface what they feel, what they feel and what they've lost. So there are all of these assignments that you get. You're writing a eulogy, you're writing a toast, you're writing a love poem. All of these are things that I'm assuming whoever is hiring you never acknowledges that they've hired a ghostwriter, right? Right. I mean, that is kind of fundamental to the process is you would never publicize that or take credit or seek credit. To me, that's the unspoken contract. Does that make you queasy at all? Like, do you have any qualms about the ethics of that? Uh, I don't at all. No, I don't. Um, I would, like, be the last person you would ask to help you move, right? Because I can't pick up a couch. Like, I'm just, just never going to happen. Uh, but I can write, and I can put an idea into sentences. And so this just feels like my way of being in the community and helping people. I guess I'm wondering, you know, your response to not having any qualms about the ethics of your work was so immediate and so um, clear for you. And I wonder if there's like a hierarchy of it at all, right? Like if you write a love poem for someone and the only person that is tricked is the woman who receives it, thinking that it was written by someone it wasn't written by, um, you feel that that's okay, that the the effect of that trickery is, you know, with the right intention from someone who loved her, and thus it's not that big a deal that you wrote it for him. Is there not other situations, though, where the trickery or the dishonesty about authorship is a little bit more messy? Well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll say this. Like, I've never written something that expresses emotion that isn't authentic in some way. Um, what do you mean by authentic? You know, I would never write a love poem from a person who didn't actually feel that love. Um, even the small brief that I got from him with the few details about their the way they met and their life, the affection just kind of radiated off those words. I mean, it was just jottings in a kind of like email, you know, so it wasn't, there was no poetry there, but I could just feel the love and I could feel in the assignment this this desire to express that love. And so I felt like, hey, I'm just I'm just helping give shape to something that's already out there. I, I don't write like political speeches or something that could be really manipulative. Um, it all they all feel like underdog stories to me. I always I feel like everybody I work with, they're up against a barrier. They've got something that needs to come out. They can't find the words for it. They're in there. They're just they're asking for help. And I don't I, I don't think there's anything ethically wrong with helping somebody express themselves. It's fascinating to me that you draw the line at political speeches because I think that's actually where most people are are most um, familiar with ghostwriters is that when we see someone give a political speech, I feel like a lot of folks' 
uh, understanding is that somewhere there is a speechwriter or several speechwriters that helped this politician craft the words that they're saying, that the expectation around political speeches is that that person did not write this speech alone. And yet the expectation around a wedding toast, a eulogy, and the expectation around a love poem is that the person saying it did write it. So I'm fascinated that your instinct was to say, it's not like I'm writing political speeches. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's really what I what I guess I'm asking about in terms of ethics is is a little bit about expectation and unspoken agreement. But there isn't that same societal understanding or agreement around a lot of the things you're helping people write. And because of that, if someone finds out that the wedding toast that their sister gave is something that a guy wrote who's never met them. I wonder what the damage of that is. Well, I can't think of anybody who's been harmed in the process of me helping them write something. Um, I I totally understand what you're saying. Um, but I think, I think the line between political speeches and these other types of quotidian tasks that I'm helping people with is not that one is assumed to be genuine and the others assume to be ghostwritten. It's that the politician has chosen to be in a position where they're going to be giving speeches all the time, has, you know, opted for a life in the spotlight, and that these other people that I'm helping are in some ways being forced into situations that they're ill-equipped for and that don't come natural to them and that they wouldn't have necessarily chosen on their own. To me, it feels like it's, I think it's easy for a lot of people who are, have verbal facility and have a way with words and are used to crafting these kinds of speeches and essays and personal statements. And they've been doing that, you know, since they were in eighth grade. I think it's very easy to forget that there are people for whom that does not come natural at all. And I don't feel like it's a moral failing for someone who feels a lot of emotion but isn't great with words and so needs someone to help them get that emotion into words. I don't think that's a moral failing at all. Um, I always think of it as if I was going to go out on the football field, like I would need some major padding. And I need more than a helmet. I need like a squadron of linesmen around me. Um, And so this is just, you know, writing these kinds of things. This is my football field. Somebody else has wandered on and they need a little help. They need a little support. So no, I I don't feel like there's a real risk or a harm or a boundary being crossed. I feel like this is just one human lending a hand to another human. It's pretty It's pretty basic to me. In listening to you talk about your work, it sort of strikes me as, um, I think maybe I do something very similar to what you do, but like the above board version of it. And um, mm. my work is very much about holding people's hands and walking them from where they are through the process of brainstorming what is important to them, 
what they are passionate about, what it is they want to share with the world, and then finding the language that allows them to do it in their own voice, in the way that they communicate, and then giving them the opportunity to practice it, to try it out in front of audiences that are respectful so that they feel the experience of what it feels like to have confidence in that, you know, performance or in that presentation. But a a pretty big fundamental thing that I believe is that no one can say it better than you can. I can't say it better than you can. And my job is, is not to write it for you. My job is to do all the scaffolding around you such that you are equipped and proud to do it for yourself. And I also find it to be immensely valuable that people are encouraged to find the language that allows them to express their authentic selves rather than receive the messaging that you can't do it and someone else could do it better for you. But I want to know if you think I'm fixating on something that doesn't matter. I I hear what you're saying. And part of me agrees, but the typical person I'm helping is so far away from, they're so not interested in discovering their own voice or journaling or public speaking as a method of expressing themselves and discovering themselves in a deeper way. They're just faced with a task that's overwhelming. And if they had infinite time and were open, I would love to work with them in the way that you're describing. I think it would be a calmer, more peaceful world if everybody was tuning in to those frequencies. But most of these calls for help I'm getting are like 911 calls. And it's this just isn't the opportunity for that kind of growth. It seems almost sacrilegious to a poet, writer, that people may not have that kind of relationship with words and language deep down because it's such a part of who we are and it's just a part of our makeup. But a lot of people truly aren't orientated towards language in that way. They may always have an impediment around language. It's just never going to necessarily become a tool of self-expression and discovery, and certainly not overnight uh, in these cases. Do you think that a big part of why people are seeking your help is because we are in a moment where there's a real visibility to what was once more private spaces and a desire for polished presentation at all times? Absolutely. I think that it would be one thing to bomb a wedding toast to a wedding of 150 people, you know, 30 years ago, and then everybody's forgotten. But nowadays, if you bomb a wedding toast, you're going to go viral, you know, in a matter of hours. So absolutely, it's like, the fourth wall has come down in every room and now the whole world is potentially watching. And so absolutely people are more petrified for some of these events. And 
I don't think that, you know, you can Google wedding toasts, but that doesn't always help you write your own. And so I think having somebody one-on-one who's talking to you and talking you through it and talking and finding out where the gold is and where the possibilities are, I think that's sort of invaluable and can't be replicated by all the online resources that are, are at our fingertips. Does the fact that you do this work make you question authenticity in other parts of your life? Like when you see someone give a toast and kill it at a wedding, do you not trust that they wrote it themselves? Yes. I mean, I I feel like absolutely there's a way that this becomes, you know, a hall of mirrors um, where nothing is real. But I don't feel like what I'm doing on this kind of scale would necessarily contribute to a kind of creeping inauthenticity. I feel like I'm just humanely helping people to navigate our contemporary social expectations, which, as we said earlier, can be quite demanding. I don't know, man. I mean, I think people know that politicians aren't saying their own words because, you know, slowly word got around that there were speechwriters. After this podcast, anyone who hears this now when they're at a wedding is going to be like, hold on a second. I don't know if this person wrote their wedding speech. (laughs) Yeah, well, if it's good, then... uh, Then you wrote it. Right, then I wrote it. No, you know, maybe that will actually lead to a better world because then if somebody bombs the speech, they can just blame it on their ghostwriter. There you go. (laughs) Our guest doesn't have any ethical qualms about his work, but he also knows his work is taboo and that other people might have a problem with it. So why as a society do we accept that some things are ghostwritten, like political speeches, but expect other writing to be authentic? Why do we draw these lines? And what do we even mean by authenticity? Those are questions for a philosopher. In a minute, I'll speak to one. I'm Sarah Kay. And this is Sincerely X. I've been speaking with an anonymous man who's been working as a ghostwriter for the past decade. What started as small favors for friends and relatives grew into a full-time job. Now strangers hire him to write their wedding toasts, job cover letters, eulogies. He even wrote someone a love poem. He believes he's providing a public service, that he's using his skills as a writer to help people who have something important to say, but perhaps lack a faculty for language. I personally struggle with the ethics of this. Plus, it raises so many questions. How can something written by someone else for you, still be authentic. I needed some perspective and balance, so I turned to someone whose very job is to think about these questions. Um, hello, this is Sarah. Am I speaking to Hello, the... Sarah. You are speaking to Julian, yes. Oh, hi, Julian. I assumed that you were a technician, but you are you. I just sound like a technician. I've got a technician's voice, apparently. <laughs> well, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this morning. I guess it's not morning where you are. Where are you? It's afternoon. I'm in Bristol, UK. So it's uh, three in the afternoon. There you go. It's my morning, your afternoon. Here we are meeting in the in-between. Julian Bagini is a writer and philosopher whose work largely focuses around identity and selfhood. 
he spends a lot of time thinking about this question of authenticity, about how we present ourselves to others and the ethical lines we draw. With our anonymous guest's permission, I shared our conversation with Julian. I mean, I find it extremely interesting because I, I find myself having sort of contrary reactions. On the one hand, it does seem this is a completely reasonable thing to do. You're helping people out. At the same time, I think like a lot of us, you sort of you hear about this and you have this sort of slight concern that there's a bit of a, a cheat going on here, that, you know, it's helping people to present themselves in ways that may not accurately reflect who they are. And even if they are accurately reflecting who they are, the fact that it's not they themselves who are framing the words and putting it together makes it seem just a little bit sort of fake in some way. So that's kind of the initial reaction. And I think what's interesting is even when you sort of do philosophy, you get the same kind of, I think, reflex reactions as most people when you first come across something. So you're not, um, you're not exempt from our human feelings of ickiness. <laughs> no, that's right. We're going to talk a lot about authenticity, I think. And, and I'd mm. love for you to tell me what authenticity means to you, either personally or then also in your work as a philosopher, what have you come up with as an understanding of authenticity? You know, authenticity, I think, is an extremely complicated concept. People think it's quite straightforward. You know, it's being true to yourself, true to what you really are and so forth. But I think one of the things that becomes very evident if you begin to look at personal identity and what makes us who we are is that there really isn't anything permanent and unchanging, this essence, if you like, which makes anything what it is. So authenticity can't simply be fidelity to some unchanging idea of what you have. The nature of persons is that they change. So if authenticity isn't about being true to some pre-existent version of you, then what does it mean? Because I think we do have a sense it means something. And I think it's, to me, it's more about a certain kind of truthfulness, so you're not hiding from any truth about yourself. And I think also it's about a fidelity to certain values. And to be inauthentic is therefore to kind of live a life which is somehow in conflict or in contradiction to what your values are. Aha! <laughs> There's a lot there. I've probably packed in too much. <laughs> Do you think that it is possible that somebody could craft a version of you that is even more authentic than the version of you that you could craft? That is a, a, a wonderful question. And I think it's a possibility in a way. Let's put it this way. People vary a lot in how good they are with language. And a lot of people find it very hard to find the right words to express how they feel. If someone else who has a better linguistic facility can come along and help them to express themselves, to find the right words, and maybe suggest words to them, then yes, it's possible that you may be able to present a more authentic version of yourself only because someone else has suggested those words to you. When the ghostwriter was talking about, I think, what they liked about their work, what he liked about his work and what he thought was honourable about it, I think that was precisely it. He felt that there was some kind of privilege in being able to give voice to someone's inner feelings in a way that they couldn't do unaided. And I think that is a wonderful thing. Um, if we're thinking about, you know, authenticity, I think the key thing there is, you know, is the motivation to do with a desire to convey what one wants to convey as well as possible and as clearly as possible? And if so, that's an authentic intention, I think. So this is maybe a big question, but in our current moment of social media personal branding, 
do you think that we are culturally experiencing a shift where so much of the content that we take in and create has a real pressure to be polished and perfect, and that makes people's desire to represent themselves as better or prettier or more successful than they are um, stronger than they have been in the past? Or do you think there's always been pressure in one way or another and social media is just a new manifestation of that? I think there's always been the pressure, but it's now stronger. And I think that none of the things we're talking about are completely new. For example, you know, the ghostwriting thing. I mean, people were buying books on, you know, how to write your best man speech or your wedding toast speech, which would include set openings and closings or jokes or things in them. So people were doing it in that low-tech way for quite a long time. In terms of images as well, you know, if you look at any family photograph album, you will find almost invariably some kind of very staged a photo in which everyone put on their best clothes and their best smiles and presented themselves as the perfect happy family. So there have always been those pressures and always been those desires. They do seem to be being intensified, for sure, uh, by social media and by technology. So, you know, you've got those Instagram filters or something and you can sort of make yourself look thinner, more tanned or whatever it might be. But I think what's always interesting with this is that you've always got to think about how the presentation occurs within a context which is framed by the expectations of others. And I think there might be a shift. There might be a shift towards the idea that, you know, you can kind of enhance yourself ad hoc. And, you know, if you're prepared to pay the money and do it, then that's fine. Why isn't that your your real you? And in a way, although I find myself uncomfortable with that, I think for generational reasons, it kind of makes sense. In a way, what you authentically are is what you are able to do. And what you're able to do is enhanced by things which lie outside of yourself. I think that, interesting enough, you know, most people do want a, a large part of their lives to be presentations of things which are not just as they really are, but are somehow the best versions of what they are. I don't know anyone who, if they used to choose one photograph of themselves to be on their passport or on the mantelpiece, wouldn't choose the best one, meaning not the one which actually catches them most authentically. I want to ask then about, I guess, just the the ethics around what I see as tricking someone, but maybe I'm looking at it incorrectly. I'm trying to imagine being someone who asks my best friend to write a toast for my wedding and finding out that they hired a ghostwriter and the feeling of being tricked and feeling misled. And am I just looking at it the wrong way? Or do you think that there's something unethical about misleading people, even if the harm is only being done to one person? And even if the intention was with love. Yeah, no, I think de deceiving somebody is always ethically problematic. Sometimes we have to do it for their own benefit. 
But I think, you know, one should always be very, very wary of doing that and make sure there's a very good reason. But I think what's quite interesting about these cases, though, is that the deceit element is in no way essential, Mm. right? And again, partly it's to do, again, with uh, expectations. If you ask someone to do a speech for your wedding, and you you don't you you expect them you you have every reason to think they're going to write the words themselves and they don't and they don't tell you that's deceit but they don't have to do that you could ask someone to do a speech at your wedding and say that's great that's lovely but uh, you know I tell you I, I think I'm going to need a bit of help do you mind and you say fine I, I don't mind you you might say yeah but just just make sure but don't literally let them write it for you word for word you know make sure you're in it so I think the deceit element is something which I think would always be potentially offended by and rightly bothered by. I think that's true. But it doesn't have to be the case. There are so many examples, actually. If you think about dinner parties, this is a good example. People have dinner parties. And uh, is it a cheat to sort of get anything that's been prepared by other people or or not? Well, I don't think most people don't have very strong rules on that. But if you go to someone's dinner party and they pretend they cooked it themselves, and then you go into the kitchen and you see the packets, then you're annoyed and cheated. If someone comes in and says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a bad cook, I didn't have any time, so I, uh, I got this stuff in, then, you know, you, you may be slightly disappointed, but then you, maybe not, depending on how well that person normally cooks. <laughs> so <laughs> I, the, the, the openness of these things is, is rather a separate issue from whether they're okay uh, in themselves. I, I love I love that comparison specifically because I think our guest wants so strongly to imply that the act of helping someone write something isn't shameful or deceitful, et cetera. And the act of buying food from someone else for your dinner party is also not wrong or shameful. The part that isn't great is when you say, ah, oh, yes, I worked for hours on this dish as you place it on the table. Yes. Um, that's the part that makes the rest of us feel bad when we discover the packets in the kitchen and also makes us think you're a chef that you aren't. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's something that if you're in the business of ghostwriting, almost certainly, uh, unless you are very, very rigorous in who you choose as your client, there will be people who will be using it to effectively lie and deceive. And you have a part to play in that. You might just decide that that's inevitable, uh, that if you're going to provide this service and it's a valuable service, some people will misuse it in the same way that if you sell knives, someone might use one of those knives for something nasty. You know, you might have to come to that conclusion i don't know or you tell yourself what you need to be able to sleep at night yeah i think which we all do that to be honest some of us have got to have got more to tell ourselves than others but i don't think there are many people who live such blameless lives that uh you know they have nothing at all they need to reassure themselves about in order to have a clear conscience yeah totally why do you think that we accept that some things are ghost written like political speeches or a celebrity autobiography, but feel such discomfort around other things being ghostwritten, like a eulogy or a job cover letter. Why do you think we draw those lines? We draw these lines for good reasons and for, for bad reasons. I think the bad reasons are simply what we're used to, you know. I mean, we just know now that political speeches are 
are written by people other than the person who's given them. And we just know that's a convention. We've become comfortable with it. So there's nothing to think about in a way. So partly it's a question of what we're used to. And then partly, and it's obviously related, is the extent to which we have good reason to want or suppose something to be unmediated in that way. But that those things can shift at the moment. Traditionally, we have had the expectation that at a wedding or at a funeral, for example, the person expresses themselves and it is their words and no one has helped them write them. Um, we have a certain expectation about that because that fits our idea of authenticity for that occasion. But it could easily change. People could easily uh, start to to think that actually, you know, in order to do the best honour to the person who's deceased, for example, or in order to, you know, uh, make the occasion as good as possible for the bride and groom, that it's not just acceptable, but maybe a very good idea and a very positive thing that people get help with it. So at the end of the day, I think, as long as we don't feel duped, as long as what something is, is what we expect. My last question is, in in your mind, are there things that should always come from the author themselves as opposed to a ghostwriter? Are there things that are sacred that should never be ghostwritten? I don't think that's the key factor. I think the key factor is the, the honesty of the package. Mm. That's, that's what it's the honesty of the package. And there's a spectrum of help. You, you go and you help people as a poet to, to write things in their own words. But at the same time, you know, the value of what you do is surely demonstrated by the fact that what they would have written before your intervention and what they write afterwards are not the same thing. Hopefully the second thing is, is better. So in that sense, you know, you've already done something, which means that yeah, would you call what they said inauthentic? Well, no, no. But you've helped them, you've aided them, you. But you've 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 done it in such a way that ultimately they choose all the words themselves. In the end, um, it only seems to me one step further to help choose the words uh, for a person. Right. It's it's not You're that not comfortable with that, are you? No, 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 no. <laughs> I I am very much, and I'm grateful yeah. for you to draw it back to that. I think what I'm hearing from you. And tell me if I'm mishearing. What I'm hearing from you is like, it's not the act of getting help or hiring a ghostwriter that is the problem. The problem is how honest or transparent you are about the help you received based yes. on who is experiencing the thing you got help with and what their expectations are in what they're receiving. I think that's exactly right. I, I can't improve on that. <laughs> Phew. Okay, great. Got it. I think that you've helped me sort through it very much so that it isn't as black and white as I thought it was or I wanted it to be, which is always <laughs> the answer and always the harder thing to accept. But you've helped me get there, so thank you. <laughs> Sincerely X is produced by Magnificent Noise for TED. Our production staff includes Kim Naderfane-Peterse, Destry Sibley, Eva Walchover, Nora Wazwaz, 
and Chloe Shasha. With the help of Angela Cheng, Janet Lee, Michelle Quint, Jesse Baker, and Colin Helms. Our fact checker is Lorena Aviles Trujillo. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. If you or someone you know has a story that you think should be shared anonymously with others, please let us know at ted.com slash SincerelyX. I'm Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X. Sincerely X.